Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Like the kōkako, the saddleback, or tieke, belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos, made possible by support from the Peace and Disarmament Education Trust. Good day, friends. We'll be talking with Andrew Shepard, who's the editor of the book Creation and Hope and former national director of A. Roche. ATRO in New Zealand. He's a theologian activist and researcher with the University of Otago Center for Theology and Public Issues. Good day. Andrew, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for, uh, thanks for ringing me, Marvin. Good to catch up. How did you get involved in um, Eracha and how do you pronounce it and what does it do? So, uh, so Arosha is a uh, Portuguese word, um, so might be worth giving a bit of a history of Arosha. So uh, Arosha, um, so that's how you pronounce it, Arosha. Um, some British missionaries in the 1980s, Christian missionaries, uh, had a real uh, desire to see their care of wanting to live well on, on the planet and care for other species. Um, and integrating that into their Christian faith. So they went and lived in Portugal, and they lived uh, down in the south of Portugal on a place called the Algarve Estuary, or Algarve Estuary, and uh, were very involved in um, bird migration surveys and looking into bird life. And the area of land that they were living on, they were living on a farm on a, on a sliver of land which is called uh, Cuenca de Arrocha, or the Rock the farm on the rock and they thought well that's a good way of describing what we're doing we, um, we're living on a rock um, Arrocha, so Arrocha is a Portuguese name meaning the rock but also because of their Christian faith uh, obviously linking with this idea that they were building their lives on on Jesus the rock which is obviously a passage from the Gospels Peter. Um, so that was the history of Arrocha that was 35 years ago and, and now there are 20 countries around the world where Arrocha um, has projects and uh, I was involved in um, sort of 2005, 2006. A number of us in New Zealand who had connections um, explored setting up a washer in New Zealand, uh, which we did in 2007, and we've existed here ever since. So, is it an ecumenical group? 
Uh, it is ecumenical, yep. If your uh, um, listeners understand ecumenical, yeah. So um, Will it include uh, different Protestant denominations? That's right. Well, Protestant and Catholic. or Greek Orthodox? Yep, yep. So we have a range of people uh, involved. Uh, I mean, it's obviously it's a Christian organisation, so it's motivated. Our action and our work is motivated by um, sort of our Christian faith. Um, so... Um, but we also, we work very closely with community, so you don't have to be a Christian to be involved in the organisation. So, um, and a lot of our projects, we're working at local community level, and so we're engaging with both people who would share Christian faith, but also people um, who don't share Christian faith and who share other faiths. Um, those involved in the organisation, uh, sort of uh, sort of involved in leadership and involved in sort of the core of running would uh, hold Christian faith, and they would be from a range of denominations. So there's um, Baptists and Anglicans and Catholics and um, Pentecostals. So, yeah, it's, a, it's quite an ecumenical um, uh, organisation. Today, tomorrow is Treaty Waitangi Celebration or Waitangi mm. Day. Uh, how uh, strongly have uh, Maori ideas of Katiaka or stewardship influenced your views on um, conservation and sustainability in New Zealand? Um, probably on a personal level, very significantly. Um, I, I, I guess growing up in New Zealand, like a lot of New Zealanders, both connected to sort of living with the environment, but also in terms of relationship uh, with Māori. Um, and understanding how their worldview operates uh, or trying to get an insight into how that operates in time with Māori. And so, yeah, heavily shaped by sort of the idea of kaitiakitanga. Um, so, and I think probably also organisationally uh, we're, we're all quite young as a movement, but um, uh, particularly our main project, which is up in Raglan, we work very closely with the local hapu. And so... Um, on the project that runs there and so again uh, a connection there in terms of uh, seeing the world through um, the eyes of mana whenua um, allowing them to uh, be very involved in management and decision making around how projects shape has been very influential. Also Arosha uh, around the world um, has a number of sort of values or ethos um, and one of those is around sort of uh, the importance of cross-cultural engagement. The very fact that Russia is sort of uh, exists in 20 countries means that there's this real richness in terms of different cultural ways of understanding the world and understanding how we see ourselves in the world. All of that is still wrapped within sort of a Christian framework. Um, but, yeah, particularly for me, therefore, I think uh, critical to uh, us as as New Zealand sort of moving forward into a sustainable future is continuing our, um, a deepening of our relationship of what it means to be uh, in partnership with Tangata Whenua and deepening our, um, our relationship with each other and our understandings of, of how we live well. So how do you... What are some of the um, views... Money if we know I have toward creation that are helpful. Um, I mean, once you, I mean, that's probably a question better to ask someone who 
who is Māori. Um, I mean, the insights I have are from spending time in Māori context and I think probably the key learner, both from Māori but from Indigenous people in general, is uh, for us as Westerners is to move what, uh, say, um, environmental um, ethicists and environmental theologians would say is moving beyond anthropocentrism. Um, the idea there... You know, we're not the centre of the universe, perhaps. That, exactly. And I think, uh, particularly as Westerners post-Enlightenment, we have come to see ourselves as the centre of the universe or masters of the universe. Um, so, obviously, we had this tremendous ability through science and technology to control and manipulate the world. And with that has come something of a hubris that... Uh, that you know that we control the world and that the world that we live in is all about us um, and obviously within an indigenous thinking um, the world isn't all about us we're part of a, a complex amazing uh, from a Christian perspective we would say creation that has come into being and that we're embedded in that um, I was reflecting on that actually this week because I was uh, I was in Australia last week for a conference and um, was talking to a friend who's an Aboriginal um, theologian uh, activist and uh, we were talking around uh, sort of the national parks here and often if you turn up in a national park on, on, a, on an interpretive sign there is often on the bottom of the sign it says um, you know we acknowledge the traditional owners of this land which is uh, the Australian you know it's an attempt to uh, recognise that prior to that land becoming national park, Indigenous people, Aboriginal people lived on that land. But we were discussing how the very language, the very use of that word, um, the traditional owners of the land, that word ownership in itself is a very Western conception. Well, the idea that we own land, you know, as, well, as colonisers in America came across that quite well, early Exactly. On. So, and, and, and in an Indigenous worldview, we don't own land. Uh, we well, are proper to say the land owns us. Exactly, exactly. So we we are owned by the land, or and we might have a role or a function as custodians or caretakers, or often in, in a Christian perspective, people might use the language steward, which personally I think is a little bit problematic because the reality is we don't tend to use that as a metaphor anymore. But whatever metaphor we use, there, that is a, a recognition that we might have a particular function within that um, ecosystem and within the land, but actually it's not about owning or controlling. Um, and so I think probably an indigenous uh, worldview uh, is really helpful, corrective to us to recognise that we are embedded in a bigger system and that uh, we're not the centre of the story. Um, and obviously that also resonates with sort of the Christian story because the Christian story would also remind us that uh, we're not the centre of the story. Um, a Christian story is, is Christocentric, so that Christ is at the centre of the story, um, and the story is about what God is doing in the world and his intentions or God's intentions for the world, um, not, uh, not the fact that the world is, is all about us. I guess the, it's good to remember that the treaty and non-offender have a lot to teach us, particularly about how we relate to, how we theoretically should relate to the land. But we also can't expect too much. Like I think we may have expected too much from sea lord and fisheries and uh, 
and uh, big agriculture when it seems to me that when you get into the corporate sector, uh, whatever background you come from, you tend to lose that. Well, well, I think there's two questions there. I mean, I think I think there's the, the, the question around uh, a worldview question and, and how we perceive the world. But then I think we also live in a, a milieu of a world, you know, our political economy is, is a neoliberal, um, you know, some would say a global global, you know, techno-capitalism, um, you know, the latest thinking that's coming out, there's a book recently exploring the idea of surveillance capitalism, but we, you know, we live in a time of history where the world has become commodified, um, so everything then within the world has turned into a financial commodity uh, for profit, and so regardless of our own world views, um, or I say our religious leanings, when we operate in that world, that uh, that sort of pervading narrative and that pervading way of looking at the world does tend to shape us. So, um, uh, I, I yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to personally throw stones at Sea Lord and others. I you know I think there's a there's also pragmatism of of running businesses, but I there is an element in which there's another discourse, there's another narrative, and there's another reality which determines the way in which we economically engage and run businesses in the world. Um, and that that also shapes the way in which we interact with, um, with say, if we use the word nature and the environment around us. Does business that business way of running the world also affect the way governments uh, run the world and what they do and won't do? For instance, uh, the uh, I think a good example might be what's happened in um, Canterbury over the last nine years with. With both with democracy and with um, irrigation, I mean we've, we're in a, a water crisis—not a lack of water, but a lack of clean water. Uh, sorry, you're, you were saying lack of clean water in Canada or lack of clean water in here in Canterbury? Canterbury. Oh, Canterbury! And what yeah. happened over the last nine years? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I mean, certainly, I mean those those I mean, putting a commission in instead of the democratically elected. Yeah, board. Yeah, um, it wasn't about cleaning up the water. It was about being able to use the water as as the business and and agriculture saw fit. Yeah, yeah, and and again, certainly that idea of you know essentially again that's a worldview question. So the idea that uh, or or a scientific question, the idea that a river um, is a you know as a has a life force of its own from a Maori perspective that it's that or. And we've done this. We've enacted now this with the Wanganui to recognise that it that it is a, a tupuna, that it's an ancestor, that it, that it has its own life force, and yet that then comes into conflict with sort of a very uh, um, reductionist economic way of understanding, which is that there's this giant um, tap and water. It's there to use, and if you're not using it, you're wasting it. Exactly, you know, and so from from the an extreme example, any water that gets out to the sea is obviously clearly being wasted. Um, and so it's, it's, it seems to me that the tension is navigating between those realities. Um, but the issue is, it's not about navigating. I mean, you know, you can't you can't have you can't have a sustainable um, planet if you're draining all the water out of your your rivers. Um, uh, so certainly in terms of 
I mean, obviously we're getting into questions here of politics, but certainly, at least during the last, say, uh, 10 or 15 years, the pendulum has strung, swung in New Zealand to sort of a much more, well, in many ways has gone back to sort of an extractive mentality so that uh, waterways and conservation areas are there for us to extract resources out of them um, for building the economy. And, of course, then that raises the question, well, we're building the economy for... Uh, you know, it'd be the most important thing is economic growth, et cetera, et cetera, because we need to improve our standards of living. And yet, yet we also know that actually the reality is that there are 8 billion of us on the planet and actually we can't all live to a Western standard of living. Um, it's just totally unsustainable. So we've still got this narrative of perpetual growth, of infinite growth, but you can't have infinite perpetual growth on a on a planet with limits. Um, Pope Sanchez... Pope Francis said you can't separate uh, the sustainability and ecology and spirituality from politics and from economics. No, and, and he's right. And so, I mean, those things are interwoven together. And so, as a you know, as a as a globe, that's the challenge that we face as we move into the future. If if we're going to rethink the nature of human civilization, which in light of climate change and the ecological crises we're facing in terms of our rivers and our oceans and our atmosphere and our soil loss, then that requires a new way of living. I guess as a, as a theologian, my, my leaning is recognizing also that we live by stories. Um, you know, we're embedded in stories and that's what shapes the way in which we live and act as um, human communities. So, uh, though, and those stories then, how they then work themselves out or have legs put on them in terms of, say, into political economy, that's, that's the challenge as we, um, okay. as we move into the 21st century. And, and so pulling some of those threads together, you know, that's where I think relationship with Indigenous people, with Tangata Whenua in New Zealand, to, um, to and, and, as Pope Francis would say, within, say, the within the Christian tradition or within other religious traditions to recognise the wisdom and the ways in which those stories offer us new ways of imagining ourselves in the world. Um, I mean, obviously, one of, the, one of the fascinating things within the environmental movement is that since 1967, uh, there was a famous uh, article written in 1967 by a, an American historian called Lynn White who basically blamed the ecological crisis um, on Christianity. So Christianity was to blame for... Um, the fact that we found ourselves um, living unsustainably and damaging the world. Um, I think probably 50 years later, people realised that was a somewhat simplistic um, uh, explanation. Because well, if I was going to be simplistic, I would probably blame capitalism. Yeah, so, well, <laughs> well, and even even capitalism. I mean, yeah, you, well, I mean, there's a, I mean, certainly, I think the modern world in terms of say the last 500 years modern capitalism but but say the work of Jared Diamond would suggest that actually even prior to modern yes. capitalism you know his book we've been collapsed. doing this wrong for a long time well exactly and, and the fascinating thing for me as a theologian is that that then brings us back to actually this is not a new phenomenon like there's something about us as homo sapiens which seems to be hardwired with us which gives us that ability to uh, both manipulate and control the world and turn it into wonderful beautiful amazing things but also to control and subjugate and um, destroy um, 
And that's true of both our human relationships, but also our relationships with other species and with the land itself. And so, you know, there's a history of us living beyond our means, living beyond human limits. You might call that human greed. And ultimately, ultimately that becomes a, you know, a, a, a metaphysical or a, a, a theological reflection, which is what is it about us as, as a species which gives us say within a Christian tradition we would talk about we're made in the image of God, we have this tremendous power, we can be both loving, um, benevolent, uh, altruistic, empathetic beings, and we can also be incredibly destructive, violent, vicious um, people at the same time. Um, And therefore we can both create wonderful um, places of beauty and harmony and tranquility and we can also create uh, wastelands and deserts. And, and, and certainly global capitalism, sort of the last, some would suggest the last 500 years, we're now living it, um, many would suggest we're living it sort of the late capitalism and that we're beginning to now inherit, um, or we're heading down the same track, which is we're ultimately heading towards collapse. We're going to play a, a current s- story by um, Billy Bragg. Ah, yep. Save the world and all Simply by collecting up Tin cans and empty bottles We all want to believe it's true But it don't matter what you do So long as we continue to Burn our way through fossils Now it should come as no surprise To learn about the ocean's rise Polar caps are melting with every year that the planet warms. Now people have to understand, we're gonna feel it far inland. It's gonna shift the seasons and supercharge the storms. King tide is a coming, king tide is a coming, king tide is a coming, bringing flood in on a sunny day. Everything away And you know The oceans They connect us all No one can just Build a wall We have to work together We can't do this On our own To think that you Can stand aside Is nothing more Than foolish pride Cause everyone's A libertarian Till the brown water Floods their home You may live on higher ground Feeling like you're safe and sound Thinking as you look around This is your lucky day But everyone beneath the sky Soon be looking for somewhere high and dry Nothing you can ever do Will keep them all at bay Because the king tide is a-coming Flooding on a sunny day King tide is a-coming Can't you hear the meltwaters running The king 
everything away The king tide is a-coming You have to act today Well, friends, we're talking with Andrew Shepard, editor of Creation and Hope, and you can podcast this program by going to googling or radio at, at dot org dot nz, and then go to uh, podcast, and then go to community or chaos. And uh, at the end of this week, at the beginning of next week, you can get this program, and you can also get anything I've done in the last few months. The last six months, probably. Well, Andrew, um, we were talking about... Um, did you want to say anything about the book that you helped edit? Uh, yeah, yep. So uh, the book, uh, Creation and Hope, um, it's an edited collection. Uh, Creation and Hope Reflections on Ecological Anticipation and Action from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, it has its origins there as a... Um, Catholic eco-theologian called Celia Dean Drummond uh, and she came to New Zealand in uh, January 2016 and Arosha hosted a theological conference um, and many of the papers in the book are, or chapters in the book are drawn from that conference um, uh, and yeah, it offers I guess some reflections around uh, what it means to think around Christian faith and Christian spirituality about how that might uh, offer us new ways of thinking about the world and in particular I guess the two things we were wanting to explore is um, uh, sort of reflecting on an evolutionary perspective and uh, how that might help us to rethink uh, who we are as humans within the long span of time um, and what that means for an, a Christian anthropology but also then reflect on, uh, on what's known as eschatology or hope and uh, what it means to uh, think about how we live in the world from a Christian perspective and what it means to live with hope. Um, so there's a, yeah, there's a range of interesting chapters. Some of them are dealing with um, reflections straight from biblical passages. Some of them are reflections you, you mentioned before about the Canterbury um, water uh, situation. And someone offers a... Uh, Catherine Rushton, who's a, who's a Catholic writer, offers a reflection about um, water and uh, the story from the Gospel of John and uh, Jesus' meeting with a woman at the well and offers a sort of, a, I guess, a ecological, political reading of that passage in light of water issues in Canterbury. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting book. So, um, yeah, people can get hold of that. It. Uh, uh, it's online, published by Whitcomb Stock. Okay. We were talking about what it... Um, different ways of looking at the environment or about our place in the world, really. Now, could you comment on the idea that the world... What do you mean by the term sacrament? You talk about the term sacrament in the book. What does that mean to you? Well, so, I mean, obviously, historically, the word sacrament, uh, you know, the idea that... uh, it's a, the visible, it's sort of a, a symbol of the visible presence of God, or the way in which God, uh, or the divine, enacts grace. Um, and so, particularly amongst um, ecological theologians or environmental theologians, the idea has become very. 
strong about recognizing that the whole of the whole of life is sacramental. Um, historically, within say the Catholic tradition, there are seven seven sacraments, and within the Protestant tradition, there are two sacraments normally. But what does it mean to if we see that um, all of the world around us, in some way, is imbued or imbibed with the presence or the symbol of the of the reality of God, and as a means by which God enacts His grace? then the whole world potentially around us becomes sacramental. Um, from a theological angle, this is, this, is, this is always sort of an interesting area because it moves into discussion about uh, what is known as natural theology, the idea that, that somehow God um, is at work in the world, but also often conflates the divine and creation. And obviously, historically, within Christian theology, um, within Orthodox Christian theology, people would say, no, uh, the divine God is uh, other than than the created world. Um, and so therefore the word sacrament becomes significant because that would suggest that that the divine is present and visible but, but doesn't conflate the divine to creation. There is still something other than uh, there is some distinction between the world that we're embedded in and... Uh, God who aren't there some Christians who say that God is both involved in the world and part of the world but also different or not just the world yeah and and I I I would hold to that uh, as well that that in ways that we don't uh, that God uh, is at work not only at work but uh, that there is that the world around us in some sense is in is imbibed with the glory of God, Jared Manley Hopkins would say. Uh, again, within the Western tradition of Christianity, we've struggled with this because we tend to sort of have a more uh, dichotomous way of looking at the world, and so we struggle with those paradoxes. Within, say, the Orthodox Church, um, they they don't struggle so much with sort of that more mysterious. So, for instance... Um, there's an Orthodox um, theologian called um, Alexander Schmemann, and he talks about the idea of recognizing the world as, as an epiphany. Um, and uh, he speaks, you know, he, he in one of his books talks about, and I, I bring this up in my chapter, for us as Westerners, when we talk about the world as symbol, or we talk about um, a sacrament as a symbol of the world, we we are often contrasting, we say, oh, well, that's symbolic of this thing over here. And what we mean is that this, the thing over there is the real thing, but this is symbolic of the real thing. And so therefore we see them as radically discontinuous. Um, whereas within, within an Eastern understanding, they would say that if something is symbolic, um, it not only represents something, but in some way it also participates. Some scientists uh, would go along with the Greek interpretation. I've been read, read a book called The Beautiful Question by Frank Wozzeck, a Nobel uh, Physics Laureate, who talks about the beauty of the universe, and asking beautiful questions leads to either beautiful answers or more beautiful questions. But and he talks about Maxwell and others. But he talks, he gives you the impression that the, the universe itself is beautiful and has purpose mm. and pattern. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, and I mean, and certainly, I mean, <laughs> the interesting, this is, a, this is a different discussion, but, you know, in terms of quantum mechanics, the idea that, 
uh, our understanding sort of of uh, sort of strict divides um, get somewhat broken down when we begin to understand sort of the the subatomic particle world in terms of um, things being present in two places at once. Um, and I, so I, yeah, I, going back to the question, I think sacrament is a really helpful way to say that we're surrounded by a world which is suffused with glory and wonder it's and beauty and that the divine is present in it, but that, that's not the totality of, mm. of, of God or the divine. Um, it's, it's an element of it. Um, and so I guess in the book when I'm talking about the idea of sacrament, and in particular in my chapter I explore the idea of what does it mean to uh, see New Zealand, uh, New Zealand birds as in some way um, being the presence of God's spirit. I'm not saying that uh, that is the, the totality of God's spirit, or that God's spirit is captured in a bird, but I'm saying that perhaps in some way they are... Um, that God's spirit is present and uh, um, we're experiencing something of God's spirit. It's not a new idea, but really, is it? Because you find in the Psalms that... Exactly, exactly. And, that's, and no theologian come up with new ideas. So, I mean, I just I in mind uh, a whole lot of passages from Scripture and also within the Christian tradition, which suggest the same thing. And yeah. also Jewish theologians um, for a long yeah, time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but if you consider that the world and perhaps the universe as sacramental in a real sense uh, doesn't that command a certain amount of how we should react to it that how we should react that we're part of this sacrament and how do how do we respect it now yeah, and I so it seems to me that language like that is important because it it, it provides a different worldview for how we might think about the world. So, crudely put, if we see the world as as resources, then you know overwhelmingly it's an anthropocentric way of understanding the world that those resources are there for us to use for our benefit. And obviously we do need to live in the world, whereas if we understand the world as sacrament, then we begin to see the world as suffused with glory and mystery and wonder. And at least obviously within uh, Christian tradition, therefore that sacrament is to be um, received as gift. The word sacrament, obviously the, the prime example of sacrament is uh, what in the Christian tradition is known as the Eucharist or in sometimes referred to as communion or the Lord's Supper. The word Eucharist in Greek means to give thanks. And so the very action when Christians gather around a table and uh, will gather at the altar and the body and blood of Jesus is broken, the Eucharist, we receive those that sacrament um, in thanksgiving. And so the appropriate thing is to receive it as gift to um, pass it round as gift with one another and then to offer that back with open hands back to God as our lives are shaped um, as a community to live lives of thanksgiving and, and joyfulness. And so obviously that's a radically different way of then, if we see all of the world as sacrament, a different way to be shaped as people uh, in contrast to a, a, a narrative or a story that tells us that the world is sort of inert, um, and it's a it's a bunch of resources for us to utilize for our own benefit. The I guess the people that are critical of history 
of Christianity would go back to the first chapter of Genesis and emphasize uh, just giving humanity dominion over the natural world animals and that this might devalue animals and the world in a way. Yeah, and, and certainly so, and uh, I, I think I mentioned earlier, Lynn White, who's a historian in 1967, uh, he lays the blame um, at, of the ecological crisis that he sees beginning to emerge in the 1960s on the doorstep of Christianity, and in particular looks at the passages from Genesis 1 um, and says, well, you know, any any sort of religion which gives uh, this idea that, that humanity has dominion um, is clearly at fault for the, the situation we're in. Um, there's been a lot of discussion amongst uh, Christian biblical scholars to recognize that uh, even that language, dominion, how do we interpret that, um, both in terms of the original um, text, recognizing it wasn't written in English, and so what do those words um, mean in Hebrew to rule and subdue? Are they are they words of violence, um, or and then also theologians who have suggested well actually within a Christian story, um, and in fact there's uh, uh, there's a, a friend of mine who's done a PhD down in Dunedin through Otago who explored this idea of dominion. If if ultimately as Christians dominion is to is understood Christologically, that is, we understand dominion by looking at Jesus. How does Jesus exercise dominion? He exercises it as a, as a servant, as a prophet, um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a dominion that is offered by offering his life up. It's not one of subjugation and violence. And yes, so it's... likewise, if we therefore are called to be uh, people with dominion within the Christian tradition in terms of the way we engage with the world around us, then um, how do we do that? Also recognizing that even within those Genesis passages, you've got Genesis 1, which talks about dominion, but then you've got Genesis 2, talks about humanity as placed within a garden and their job is to till and to keep. Uh, and the language there for till and keep is the same language that's used when Israel is told to um, care for the temple and to enact the um, the activities that are part of running a life of worship within the temple. And so those aren't actions of violence, those are actions of care and um, religious observance. Also in Genesis you have um, God speaking and saying that is good. And even the idea of the uh, uh, the Sabbath is a way of recognizing the goodness of creation, the goodness of the earth or the universe. Yeah, uh, and again, well, again, and, and, and the whole way in which we read, you know, I, I, how often churches you turn up, and unfortunately, um, the, the fact is I've often heard people talk about, you know, uh, humanity is the climax of that Genesis creation story. Well, actually, humanity isn't the climax of that story at all. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful poetic piece of writing, and the climax of the story is, of course, day seven because seven is the is the holy number, and day seven is the Sabbath day when God rests and when the world is in shalom. So um, we turn up. You know, we actually turn up on the same day that a whole lot of other species turn up. So actually, when in the Genesis story, if read properly, we're not the climax of the story. We're simply um, part of a story of God creating a world, bringing it into being, and then um, on day seven, 
God rests because the world is is shalom, it's it's whole, it's it's good. We're going to play another piece of music, and this is Sidney Carter, and it's uh, um, the uh, Carol of the Creatures, and it's um, but really goes back to St. Francis, I think. Creator high and holy, to you all praise and power belong. Let all men listen to the carol of your creatures. You are the end and the beginning of their song. Holy man, carol to the Lord, I say, show what he has done. Holy man, carol to the Lord, I say, show him light the sun. And first I call my brother's son, for by that light I see the leaping of the Holy One that called the light to be. Holy man, carol to the Lord, I say, show what he has done. Holy man, carol to the Lord, I say, show him light the sun. I call upon my sister moon, I love that gentle light. And all the stars so sharp and clear that shiver in the night. And carol to the Lord, I say, show what he has done. Holy and carol to the Lord, I say, show him light the sun. I call on you, my brother, wind by weather, foul or fair. You show the likeness of the Lord, I breathe him like the air. Holy and carol to the Lord, I say, show what he has done. Holy and carol to the Lord, I say, show him like the sun. I call on you, my sister, water, come down from the sky and show the likeness of the Lord. To the Lord I say, show what he has done. Holy Pancaro to the Lord I say, show him light the sun. I call on you, my brother, fire in yellow, light and red. You leap and carol to the Lord with sparks around your head. Holy Pancaro to the Lord I say, show what he has done. Holy Pancaro to the Lord I say, show him light the sun. My sister, death. You call me to leap and carol, I cannot say no. I am a dancer to the end and the beginning of all the leaping and the caroling I go. Oh, leap and carol to the Lord, I say, show what he has done. Oh, leap and carol to the Lord, I say, Show him like the sun. Come all you men and women to show pity and forgive. For by your love you show the Lord and with him you shall live. Oh, leap and carol to the Lord, I say. Show what he has done. Oh, leap and carol to the Lord, I say. Show him like the sun. Leap 
one carol to the Lord I say, show what he has done. Oh, leap and carol to the Lord I say, show him like the sun. Oh, leap and carol to the Lord I say, show what he has done. Oh, leap and carol to the Lord I say, show him like the sun. That was uh, the uh, Carol of the Creatures. We're talking with Andrew Shepard, uh, the editor of Creation and Hope. And uh, you can podcast this by going to uh, Google and orradio.org.nz and going to podcasts and going to um, Community or Chaos. You were talking about um, Genesis. It's not the only part of the Bible that talks about creation, is it? Uh, Paul in Romans talks about um, the whole of creation groaning in labor until now. Now, what does that mean? Yeah, um, I, uh, I mean, it's a beautiful passage, um, Romans 8. Um, again, it's interesting, often I, I am in context where I hear people talk about uh, the world groaning in pain and they, and they um, allude to Romans 8 um, with a suggestion that, that uh, you know, the, the havoc that we are wreaking, wreaking upon the, the, the world at the moment um, you know, these are the, gr- the pains that creation is making. But actually, Romans 8 um, is a passage of hope written by Paul. But we're waiting um, for adoption, aren't we? Well, yes, and, and the imagery is a very powerful imagery in Romans 8 because the imagery is of, of birth. So the imagery is of, uh, of, of a, a woman giving birth, and yes, she's experiencing incredible pain, but the pain is linked to the hope that that new life is coming, that something um, which we can, you know, we witness, we know that there is a child in that womb is being birthed and, and is, is coming into the world. And so the imagery there in Romans 8 is not one of sort of doom and gloom and like, oh, we're listening to creation and pain and suffering and, and people should do something about this. It's actually a, a, a summons to the people in Rome to say, as you, as you live and as you participate, be aware that, yes, it, there are growing pains here and there are pains of the childbirth, but, but it's, a, it's the hope that the Spirit to, the, to these Christians, that the Spirit is at work in this world and uh, there is a new future um, being birthed in the present, uh, that something else is, is, is emerging. Um, and certainly from you know from a from a Christian tradition that strikes me as um, very significant. Uh, and as somebody who lives sort of in this world of uh, a theologian, but deeply involved in sort of the conservation and environmental world, where actually um, there isn't always a lot of hope because all the ecological and Biological indicators um, suggest that, uh, well, they're, they're pretty bleak reading about what's going on in terms of biodiversity loss, habitat destruction, um, obviously climate change. Um, so to have hope, though, is not to be uh, sort of have this naivety 
that those things aren't happening. But within the Christian story, because of the faith that the Spirit, in ways we don't always understand, is at work in the world, uh, that motivates me to say, what does it mean for me to participate along with what God is doing to see a new world emerging? We are required to participate, aren't we? I mean, one of the dangers of of evangelism is that you might wait for God to, or Jesus to come back. I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke of this, that that in a way, uh, humankind, uh, it's, when he talks about world coming of age, he's talking about our responsibility that after what we've experienced in the Holocaust and so on, we can no longer just wait for God to put things right, but we have to be responsible to creation, to humanity, and to the divine. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think therein lies, you know, within the Christian tradition, there has been, again, a, a back and forth, but at times a tendency to to think, well, actually, uh, we, we don't worry, because if we, if we hold to the idea that God's Spirit is at work in the world, then we can just sit on our chuffs and, and uh, do nothing because God will sort it all out in the end. Whereas, um, you know, obviously, in my understanding is that God's work in the world is uh, involves uh, not a, the privilege of us in some ways participating in what God is doing in the world. And to, you know, the, the story of Jesus, behold, the good news is breaking into this world. And so we, if, uh, as a, from a Christian story, says that we offer our lives back to God to participate in that story. Um, now, there's obviously a balancing act to be there because that doesn't mean, uh, there's a theologian called John Howard Yoder who would suggest that Christians also have a tendency to want to grab and hold on to the levers of history, that we think that if we just pull the right lever, then history will work out the way it, we want it to. Um, I'm not sure and, you can say that after the 20th century. Well, <laughs> well exactly, and then I think climate change offers an, another uh, uh, very Or the poignant, 21st. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, exactly, because actually we can't control the levers of history. Um, but uh, again, from a Christian tradition, which I write within and think within, we are called to participate and to hold on to an understanding um, that, that God is at working world and that God's purposes for the world uh, as a place of um, beauty and diversity that gives glory as a whole creation back to God, that that's what God is in the purpose of doing. And we get the joy of participating um, in ways um, of being part of that. Okay. In your book, Scott Kirkland says that capitalism diminishes our hope and our ability to find new visions. What does he mean by that? Uh, well, I think in that sense, Scott, Scott picks up on sort of my earlier reflection uh, earlier in, uh, in the interview, which is, uh, I think, in our modern sort of techno-capitalistic world, um, our imaginations have been um, captured by... Um, the media of capitalistic society and uh, not only have they been captured but obviously that, that shapes our imagination so and I would say our, our imaginations of the world are somewhat emaciated because of that um, I mean even discussions around what the future might bring I mean in many ways the story of the last 
30 years of engaging with, with the question of climate change, uh, the, our imagination has primarily around, well, how do we respond to climate change within the parameters of sort of global capitalism? The so one sense, our imagination has already, um, has already said, well, this is, this is the given. Now, pragmatically, it is the given, but we don't seem to be a post, you know, the post the end of the Cold War. There are no future political narratives to give us other options, and so our imaginations have sort of become reduced to sort of only one potential way of imagining the future. It does seem to me that increasingly around the world, whether it be in social movements, whether it be around Black Lives Matters, whether it be the writing of... Um, Pope Francis in Laudato Si, who in one sense is trying to open space for a new imagination to say, what does it mean to think about political economies and ways of living which are different, and how do we draw upon our traditions to reawaken our imagination? Um, and so I think at the heart of Scott's thing is a critique of saying, we, you know, we need to we need to break free of those parameters of sort of. Um, the, the narrow way of thinking about the world purely in sort of um, profit or loss. Does, um, the Jubilee year and the Sabbath, does that show that even back in the time of the Hebrew Bible, people were seeking different visions of the world? I, I, I mean, I think the the, uh, the Jubilee and the Sabbath there is a, is a, is a profound example because um, I mean, Israel's those stories within within the, the Torah um, are written within probably during Babylonian exile. So, in one sense, you are as a people; they are captured by a certain vision of the world. They live within the milieu of a certain cultural, religious, political narrative, which tells the way the world is. And the narrative they tell is so radically different. Um, about the place of humanity, about the place of creation, about humanity's role in it, but also about, uh, therefore, the idea of uh, human relations and in terms of debt and indebtedness. And so, you know... Forgiving debt and and freeing people from slavery. Exactly, exactly. And resting the land. Sorry? And resting the land, actually. And resting the land, exactly. And so so from a sort of of imperial system that, that... uh, enslaves people and works them to the bone and then treats land as a commodity that gets, you know, worked within an inch of its life and then you imperially, you then, if you're in an empire, you, 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 you rape and pillage that land and then you, once that land is exhausted, you have to then grow. Uh, in contrast, you have this profound narrative of Israel where what they do is that they give the land a rest. Now, the power of that, that, that then vision is such that, um, you know, you look at the 20th century, as one may argue it wasn't as successful as it could have been, but the whole uh, Jubilee movement um, in terms of uh, forgiving third world debt was profoundly influenced by this understanding. What does it mean to take that metaphor and to recognize that developing countries are uh, indebted, they're in slavery here, and to announce the year of Jubilee to release them from so the debt? It gives us hope. It, it's not a map, but it's a, a place of hope. Now, this is probably a good place for us to stop. <laughs> thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate what you had to say and the book, and I recommend the book to people. And thanks a lot, Andrew Shepard, for being with us on Community Air Chaos. Lovely. Thank you, Marvin.
Listen next week to another topic. Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.